Hello and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly shot of rapid-fire board game reviews. Our show this week is a bit of a time machine. Stephanie starts us off in 1870s London with Around the World in 80 Days. Lindsay's taking us back to the Old West with Doomtown Reloaded. I'm turning the dial back to 8000 BC with Stone Age. Mike takes us to Japan at the turn of the 20th century in Nippon. And Ruth rounds us out in Germany in the year 2012 where people roll dice to get beans. So let's catch up with Stephanie and her new friend, Phileas Fogg. In 1979, a game called Hare and Tortoise, designed by David Parlett, was the first game to win the much-revered Spiel des Jahres Award, and the world was introduced to a racing game that broke the norm of the usual roll-and-move mechanic. Fast forward 37 years, and Around the World in 80 Days, from Purple Brain and Yellow Games, has republished Parlet's masterpiece and is here to reintroduce excellence in a racing game. You literary types will know Around the World in 80 Days as the story of Phileas Fogg as he sets to circumnavigate the world with a pretty hefty bet and a case of mistaken criminal identity chasing him the whole way. And this is where the game kicks off. In this game for two to six players, each is playing their own little Phileas Fogg. The game is a race starting and ending in London, just like in Jules Verne's novel. But it's not just a matter of finishing first, but finishing the smartest that is the most important. At the start of play, each player is given some money and some rumor cards. Players also receive a chart, which is sort of a price sheet where you can tell how much it'll cost to move the number of spaces you want to move. Other than not being able to land on a space someone else occupies or move to the red spaces known as layover spaces, you can move forward as many spaces as you can afford at that time. But unlike many racing games, jumping to the biggest lead possible each turn is not always the smartest way to play the game. Throughout the board, you can take spaces to earn more money or discard some unwanted funds, and yes, there's a reason to do that. You can also land on a space to spend a few turns shaking off those nasty rumors you found yourself starting with. Or you can stop on a Passport 2 space, which lets you draw a character that could help you on your global journey or could hinder your progress if your draw is less than lucky. More importantly, you can plan your move and block your opponent from taking a space they urgently need to land on. Or you could mess up the board and player configuration that an opponent needs to earn some extra cash. Also, when you move backwards, and yes, you can and should move backwards at some point during the game, you'll earn 10 pounds per space you move back, which could let you make a strong jump forward when the moment strikes. Plus, your backwards move can be just as much of a hindrance to your opponents as a forward one when it comes to those most desired spaces each turn. It's mathy, like real mathy, but not in an overly intimidating way, but in a way that makes you think twice about just pushing ahead and never looking back. Sometimes sneaky and calculated is better than being bold and aggressive. The winner is the first to arrive back in London, rumor-free, and with fewer than 10 pounds in his or her pocket. See, that's what I mean about being calculated. The artwork from Tybalt Prugnet and Thomas Vorchek's is just on the right side of steampunk with a heavy nod to Victoriana. 
Visually, the game is perfectly on theme, but never crosses the line to vintage kitsch, which I appreciate. I do also appreciate how relatively compact the game board is, which is rare in a game that scales to six players. It's nice when you can get a large group game going, even when you're limited on table space. And scaling well is something this game does without a doubt. I've played it as a two-player game, and while it does lack a bit of the blocking strategy you see when you play with more players, it is in no way any less enjoyable. The box advertises a playing time of about 45 minutes, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to finish a game in that little time, especially in a game with four or more players. An hour to 75 minutes is probably much more realistic and much more fun. Around the World in 80 Days, to me, is a great value at $40 and can be purchased at yellowgames.com. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to unashamedly profess my love for Doomtown Reloaded. The game is designed by David Williams and Mark Woodson and published by AEG. It's a two to four player game that varies from around 30 minutes to goodness knows how long, more on that later. And the artwork was contributed by countless artists throughout the series. Doomtown, as I'm going to refer to it going forward, is a game of area control, clever hand management, immersed in a weird west setting. It's an expandable card game, as in you have the base game with four core decks, and throughout its lifespan larger expansions, pine boxes and smaller expansions, saddlebags were introduced. I'm going to say from the get-go that I struggle a little with living expandable card games, and I wrote a blog post on that a couple of months ago, if anyone fancies having a read. So that's on my blog. Going back to Doomtown now, the fact that I don't own all the expansions and haven't followed the inner narrative of the game down to the letter, it really hasn't impacted on my enjoyment of the game at all. So Doomtown is set in the fictional town of Gamora, which is a fairly lawless place of typical Wild West variety, full of weird characters and creatures. Some are hucksters who can do a bit of dark magic on the side, others are mad scientists who can invent abominations, you can ride around on mechanical horses if you have a scientist in your posse to build one. So you get the idea, that's just the tip of the iceberg. This particular Wild West world has it all going on. Your chosen factions are fighting for control over the town's deeds, and these come in the form of cards. You have a board, which is essentially a cardboard playmat. You push them together, and the centre is your town square. You each start around with two hands of five cards. One's playable poker, and this determines the start player, and the other is your hand for that round. You can spend the main or noon phase bringing deeds or dudes, the characters, into play. Now each deed is worth control points and dudes worth influence. You can move around the town in and out of each other's deeds with the aim to have more control over the town and your opponent has influence and if this is the case during the sundown phase then the game is over. When you're in the same location as an opponent you can call them out, i.e. start a shootout with them at any time during the noon phase. When both players have decided to pass, then the round is over. I think one of my main reasons for liking the game as much as I have is how wonderfully thematic it is. Even two years later, I'm always really impressed with the design. At the core of it is pretty much a card game with fancy balls, but it's so multifaceted. Variable player powers and dual use of the cards make for so many pathways to explore in order to be the top dog in Gamora. Each faction has a different feel about it, and many of the characters and abilities have similar mechanics. You can equip your huckster, i.e. magical dudes, with spells and hexes. So this attaches cards to them that often have one or two abilities that can be triggered at various points throughout the game. You may have a character who seems fairly innocuous, but during the sundown phase they gain an influence, meaning that they will always be one up, so to speak. And that's the kind of character your opponent wants to take out as soon as possible. 
I really love the shootouts. I always find them to be pretty epic. You have shootout rounds, so if there are survivors, then it can just keep on going. But after each shootout round, you can choose to go home. I rarely do, though. Fool that I am, I usually have the attitude of, no, I started this, and I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. I'm really defiant, like, I'm not going home. But on occasion, I've had really bad luck, and all my characters have ended up dead, and it's cost me the game. But not too often. And it's exciting because you don't really know how it's going to go, and you do have to play it carefully. As I mentioned, the shootouts involve playing poker, so much of that is luck-based. But it really depends on how many draws or studs the dudes involved have. So it's really about looking at the characters you have and who you're up against. Calling someone out when you have some decent shootout abilities in your hand helps. Cheating resolutions are great. You can cheat all you want at the poker to get a better hand, but if one of you or both of you is holding a cheating resolution, then it can really affect the outcome. Having dudes with hexes that have shootout abilities is another point that can really take the shootouts back and forth. I think that's one of the downsides to Doomtown. In a two-player game, it can be very long at times, but you're involved every step of the way. When I've played with two plus, it can get a little tedious. There can be a bit too much downtime when the shootouts go on for too long. I personally prefer it as a two-player. It just makes more sense to me, mono, mono, and all that. Typically, games are quite long. I'm sure some have ended after 30 minutes, but others have definitely lasted for three and a half hours, and that's when it's been an insane ding-dong battle. Sometimes when you're convinced it's all over and you're done for, just one little thing can change the course of the game entirely, then you'll play for another hour. So that's pretty crazy. It's not a great game for people who are pushed for time. This was definitely a better game pre-child. I have so much more I could say about this game, but I could be a really long time. So I have to draw a line in the sand here. Just to let you know, the game did actually come to an end with the AEG last year. But it's still available to buy if you look around, possibly not for too much longer. But recently Pinnacle Games announced that rights are now back in their hands and there will be a re-release and the new version will allow for the integration of the original cards. So I'm really looking forward to that. How long it'll be was anyone's guess, but soon rather than later, I hope. Thanks for listening. You can see and hear more from me on my YouTube channel or Instagram where I'm Shiny Have Meeples, my blog www.shinyhavemeeplesblog.wordpress.com or Twitter where I'm capital S, capital H, Meeples. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Stone Age. If you're a regular listener to the Five by Me and you haven't played Stone Age, I can almost guarantee that you'll like that. I say that with the confidence not of a clairvoyant, but with the confidence of what a strong, light worker placement euro Stone Age is. By hobby board game standards, Stone Age, and I don't mean this to be a pun in any way, so I apologize, is basically ancient. It came out in 2008, so it's been on shelves for almost a decade now. In some ways, Stone Age is really the perfect distillation of all the things that I love about Euro games. There's set collection, there's worker placement, there's contract fulfillment, there's resource management, and there's in-game scoring bonuses. This amalgamation of elements from the breadth and width of other Euro games isn't by accident. The names on Stone Age's box are designer Bernd Brunhofer and artist Michael Menzel. Menzel is one of my favorite classic Euro game artists, along with Franz Volwinkel and Clemens Franz. Michael Menzel has illustrated a number of other things you're familiar with, even if you don't know you are, including his own design, Legends of Andor. Bernd Brunhofer may not be a name you've heard, but you know his work too. He's the founder and lead developer of Eurogame Powerhouse and one of my absolute favorite publishers, Hansem Gluck. His other most famous game is St. Petersburg, published under his pen name, Michael Tummelhofer. If I'm looking for a simple introductory Eurogame to teach people, and I often am, it's always going to be Stone Age. To be clear, I'm in no way defining Stone Age as a gateway game, because it's not. We don't talk a lot about what I think of as second-step games, but I think we probably should. Many people are already aware of Ticket to Ride, Catan, and Pandemic, especially because they're now available at national chain retailers. 
So more and more, you'll be having the conversations about what game to play next after they've already played one of those. Stone Age is a great choice as a second step game because it introduces in a very understandable, relatable, and theme-integrated way a whole bunch of the mechanics that most of my favorite Euros are built around, but in bite-sized pieces without complex rules. Certainly, it's got to be the best way to introduce worker placement. You take a meeple, and you put it on a place, and then you get to roll a die to see how many of the thing you get. Once all the spaces for meeples are filled up, no one else can go there. If you put one of your tribe on a card, you get to take the card. Cards give you an immediate bonus, as well as in-game scoring bonuses, or are part of a set collection that give you points at the end of the game. At the end of every round, you have to feed your people, but unlike Agricola, which some first-time players can find really punishing, uh, as a side note, I don't, but that's another review, in Stone Age, you only have to give every person one food, and the food is pretty damn easy to get. One of my favorite aspects of Stone Age is that there are a ton of different things you can do to win, but you can't just pick one thing and do it over and over again. Being a specialist in Stone Age is how you lose, and I should know. While it's impossible to do everything, you have to pick a few things and do those few things better than everyone else, or you'll find yourself, as I did in a recent game, 100 points behind at the end. Now, I've skipped over here, as I often do because I'm very bad at linear narratives, what Stone Age is about. You are a tribe of early humans, and you're attempting to survive and thrive over multiple generations. You do this by collecting resources, uh, wood, clay, stone, and gold, learning agriculture, reproducing, and adding more members to your tribe, which gives you more people both to feed and to work for you, building huts in your village with the resources you collect, and developing arts and culture by collecting cards. I have played it at all player counts, and while I prefer it at two, it's certainly less confrontational at three or four. One quick word of warning to anyone playing Stone Age for the first time with people who have already played it. There's a slight flaw in the original rule set. It does not address any consequences for not feeding your workers if you have zero points. For every worker you can't feed, you lose 10 points, but if you're sitting at zero points, the rules give you no direction. Thus, the, quote, starvation strategy, end quote, allows unscrupulous players to front-load on other resources for a number of rounds and then run away with the game later. When I teach Stone Age, I use our house rule that completely fixes this issue. If you can't feed your worker, they starve to death. You lose them, they go back into the pool. They can always be reborn in later rounds when you procreate, but this simple little tweak prevents a somewhat degenerative strategy from ever taking hold. Boxing components are mostly flawless, as they are with the vast majority of titles originating from Hans and Gluck. Uh, a sticking point for a lot of people, with which I agree, is a very unpleasant leather dice cup that came with the earlier editions. To be completely frank, it smells gross. The dice cup doesn't really have anything to do with gameplay anyway, so I would suggest that you throw it in the trash. The wooden resources are great, all the punch boards are quality linen finish, as the player boards. The dice in Stone Age are wooden, which I find to be pleasant and thematic, but if lightweight dice are a problem for you, by all means replace them with a nice set of chess axe. So now you're thinking, he talked about the game, he talked about the box, what about the expansion? The answer is that I have not played it, and I see absolutely no reason for it to exist. It's about jewelry or something, but who cares? Stone Age is perfect as it is, and anything you added to it would only make it unnecessarily complex. Most of the time, I'm in strong favor of expansions, because if I like a game, I want more of it. But because Stone Age is one of my new classics, it doesn't need anything beyond what's in the original box. So who should buy Stone Age? People who like light worker placement euros. People who like early man in the world we inhabited 10,000 years ago. People who don't mind a touch of output randomness when gathering resources. People who don't have a problem with the depiction of human procreation between two small wooden figures. And people who have room on their shelf for an agricola-sized medium rectangle box that's just slightly too deep. I give Stone Age 5 out of 5 tribes people you attempted to starve but were foiled because your opponent listened to this segment and already knew what you were up to. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello there, it's Mike, and today I want to talk about Nippon. Have you ever had a game that you were convinced was one thing, but then after you buy it and play it, you find out it's something different? I've done that maybe a few more times than I should admit, but the most recent iteration of that for me is Nippon. 
In this 2015 release from What's Your Game, and designed by Paulo Soledad and Nuno Bizarro Santiero, you are playing as Zaibatsu, who are bringing modern industry to Japan during the Meiji period. The historical theme and Mariano Ionelli's art alone hit so perfectly for me that I just had to have it. Add in building up industry and a really interesting worker mechanism, and it's a done deal. Except, this is where I get lost. I didn't realize that at its core, this was an area control game. Even now, I still often forget that this is an area control game. So with that in mind, let me explain some of the game. Each player starts with their own player board in their color. Some money, coal, train tokens, ship tokens, and a single blueprint tile. The money is used to increase your knowledge level, buy factories, increase your coal production, increase the efficiency of your factories, and to buy ships and trains. To activate any of these actions, you select a worker from the appropriate action slot on the main board and bring that worker to your player board. They don't actually do anything on your player board. I figure they're just queuing up for payday. Going back to framing this as an area control game, let's talk about why you'd want to do these actions. For starters, each of the four regions on the board have two cities, and each of those cities have four goods they want. To claim influence in that region, you need to fulfill at least one of those goods. To that end, you'll need to buy factories to produce goods with the invest action. You must have the 6,000 yen and the requisite knowledge level marked on the factory. Knowledge can either be a current level on the knowledge track, or you can discard blueprints to bridge the gap. Next, produce goods to turn the coal from your supply into goods. The amount of coal needed to run a factory is shown on the tile. A player may run up to three different factories in one action, assuming they have the coal for that. Finally, the local market action lets you place one to three influence tokens in one region. Placing level one and two machinery on your factory can really increase the return on investment when you run a factory, producing more goods for the same amount of coal. Using more goods when you are placing influence allows for higher levels of influence. Level 2 and 3 factories also give you access to higher levels of influence in a region. You can always place your influence on a slot that was previously empty, but you can only replace a competitor's influence tile with a higher value of your own, and you want to have the highest amount of influence for each of the four regions. During the three scoring phases of the game, you calculate the influence in each region and then assign points based on who has the most control. To make it more interesting, the default white numbers on the influence spots of the board are the values of the overseas companies. They also have their values calculated and compared for majority, so you can, and in early rounds often do, lose out in regions to the overseas companies. You can increase your influence in a region by purchasing and placing trains. You can also gain bonus points for your control for a region if you have purchased and placed ships in that region, but only the two most influential companies get that bonus. You also use the goods from your factories to export. When you export, you fulfill one to three of the eight contracts you started the game with. The types of goods doesn't matter, just the number of goods spent must match what the contract needs. This is how you increase the income you receive when you consolidate. These contracts also give you instant yen or victory points. Okay, now can you see why I get focused on the wrong thing? Building up my factories and infrastructure hits so perfectly on my favorite things to do in games that I'm usually just placing influence tiles to gain the placement bonus for that specific region to feed back into my engine. And don't get me started on the consolidation. When you have six workers, or any time you choose before then, you can consolidate your board. This is when you gain money and coal equal to your current track levels, but first you discard all money and coal left in your supply, which is another way this game really pushes you to be efficient. Lastly, you remove your workers, paying for their services. But you don't pay for individual workers, you pay by the color. And if you wait until you have four, five, or six workers on your board, you can also gain a bonus of money, coal, or blueprints. And on the back of that Emperor's Reward is a point multiplier that you immediately place on the scoring section of your board to get bonus points at the end of the game. 
So it behooves you to really try and optimize which workers you take, and therefore which actions you take. As you take workers from the action slots, when all three workers are removed from the slot, it is refilled from the worker rows on the left of the board, which is known data. So if a worker in an action that you want doesn't match, you can wait and see if someone else takes that worker, causing a refill that may be advantageous to you. Okay, I know that seems like a lot, and it is, but once I get my engine going and I'm building to bigger and better factories, the rest just fades into the background as I try to make the most efficient use of my workers before my next consolidation. And that's probably why I lose so much. I need to find a better way to swing that around in service of the area control. I'm getting better at it, consolidating more frequently, and trying to time placing influence for scoring rounds, but I still have a ways to go. So if I can leave you with just one thing this episode, it's that Nippon is an area control game, and that should be considered when deciding if this is a game for you. But if you'd like to tell me how you always knew that, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and for this episode I wanted to talk to you about one of my favorite games for taking on trips. Most of the games I love tend to be larger and harder to pack, but Werfel Bonanza by Uwe Rosenberg is a great game in a pretty tiny box, making it ideal for slipping into a bag or even a pocket. Published in 2012 by Amigo Spiel, Werfel Bonanza isn't actually in US distribution, but thanks to the magic of the internet, it's easy enough to get a hold of a copy. In the game, two to five players take on the role of bean farmers, harvesting different types of beans to complete orders with the goal of being the first player to 13 coins. Each player is working with two cards, each showing six different orders or combinations of dice. The orders can designate specific types of beans or simply ask for pairs, triples, or other variations. One of the cards will be designated as active, while the second is used to slide up, covering completed orders, and then when the player decides to cash in their active card for payment, this will become the new active set of orders. The required sets of dice get harder as you move up a card, and a player can choose to cash in to receive a single coin after completing three of the orders, or keep going to earn additional coins for each of the remaining orders on the card, with a fully completed card being worth four coins. To complete orders, players roll the dice. The active player will roll all seven bean dice and choose at least one to save on the bean field card. They will then continue re-rolling the remaining dice, saving one or more each turn until they either choose to stop or run out of unsaved dice. They then take a look at all the beans they saved in the field and slide their marker card up over any orders they've completed. But everyone else at the table still has a reason to watch the proceedings, as each time the active player rolls their dice, everyone else can use the result to immediately complete orders on their own cards. They just can't add any of those saved dice from the bean field to the roll. And since a player can cash in at any time if they've completed enough orders, even an inactive player can turn in orders for cash and start a new order card. This helps reduce downtime as players end up urging the active player to roll the bean types they're looking for. It also means that an active player may choose to take a chance on saving multiple dice per turn, reducing their potential rerolls, in order to cut down on the amount of benefit everyone else is getting from their turn. Decisions in the game are enjoyably tense. Deciding when to cash in and what dice to keep can have players groaning, and choosing whether to go for multiple orders or play it safe and focus on just one can be a tough choice, especially when everyone else at the table has a vested interest in what you do. The fact that you get these great choices in a game that plays up to 5 players in just 30 minutes or so makes Werfel Bonanza a no-brainer for throwing into a game bag to pull out at the end of the night. The game is a dice version of Rosenberg's earlier card game Bonanza, which I can confess to only having played once and thoroughly disliking the experience. 
But since this version replaces the endless negotiation and trading that I didn't enjoy, with die rolling and the ability to work from others' rolls, it's apparently the bean farming game for me. And the lack of a US release isn't too big of an issue. I got my copy through Amazon and it arrived pretty quickly from Germany. I will note that the game itself only comes with German language rules, but an English translation is easily obtained online. And actually, once you've played the game, you really usually don't need to refer to them again. But once again, my beloved games can have issues. And Werfel Bonanza has two. Firstly, there's the dice themselves. There are two types of dice in the game, each with different faces, and since some bean types are only found in one or the other, it's important to distinguish them when choosing what you want to reroll. This makes it somewhat unfortunate that the dice are distinguished by being either white plastic or beige. That is, they're really hard to tell apart. Having two colors of plastic dice that actually contrasted would make it much easier to quickly tell what you're looking at. But that's a manageable issue if you look at the reference card and figure out from the die faces which one you might be looking at. The other issue with the game I find harder to get by. You see, each bean type is distinguished by both a color and a cartoonish illustration. Most are fairly benign, but the yellow china bean is... To put it frankly, it's offensive. And it makes me glad when introducing the game to people that it can be barely made out on the dice thanks to poor contrast with the background. Since the game's only 5 years old, not 50, I have no patience for calling it simply old-fashioned art. It's just unacceptable. This has to be one of the greatest dice games out there. And I'd call it perfect if not for the hard-to-distinguish dice colors and the unfortunately insensitive art. I've seen at least one amazing reskin of the game, and honestly, the level of the art has me wanting to figure out how to make one myself, purely so I can enjoy the game without cringing. But the gameplay itself works beautifully, it keeps all players engaged during everyone's turn, and leads to plenty of celebrating and cursing the dice, as any good dice game should do. So until next time, I'll continue harvesting as much as the dice allow, but you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, fivebygames.com. From all of us at the Five By, thanks for listening.